Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. This show is brought to you by my friends at Alliance and Trust. In wild times like these, you need more than financial product salespeople. You need a firm that looks at the entirety of your life and helps you with strategies that coordinate all disciplines of good stewardship so you can manage wisely what God has given you and thrive in these times of chaos and confusion. Have a team that acts as consultants in the business of you. Let Alliance and Trust help you to plan for what's next. To learn more and get your free copy of Alliance and Trust's book on financial stewardship, Wisdom Before Wealth, visit friendofbrice.com or call 805-371-8020. And because of our regulatory agencies and the fact that they think you are total rubes, I need to tell you, this is a paid advertisement. Welcome to the Bryce Eddy Show. Today, my guest has written, along with his partner um, and friend, a uh, wonderful book that I think is much needed. And uh, the book is The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court by John Yu and Robert uh, Delahunty. And so I've got uh, Robert on with me today. They are uh, both constitutional scholars, and uh, they have brought it down for the masses here, because it is important for us to understand the Supreme Court, and we're going to talk about why. How are you, sir? Thank you very, very well. Thank you, Mr. Reddy, and it's a pleasure to be on your program. Yeah, well, um, thank you for uh, for doing this and making the time. Um, this is an important book, and the reason being is because I think people aren't understanding really what's happening in our country, and as uh, I think you'd agree, and you can tell me if you don't, we have lost the um, checks and balances that our founding fathers have worked so hard on, and the Supreme Court is is kind of, in some ways, on the ropes uh, with respect to what's happening in some of the overreaches. And so I'm, I'm interested in getting your take, certainly, on that, uh, but getting an education on the Supreme Court in, in, uh, in general is going to be really good for this program. So... Uh, so tell me what you think. Well, thank you. Um, John, you and I had the idea um, just over a year ago to write this book when the Supreme Court came down with some really remarkable, monumental decisions that changed its whole trajectory and changed the course of American law. And when you do something like that, which is fairly radical, uh, you get a lot of criticism and the Supreme Court has certainly experienced that in the last year or so. We are trying to defend the court's decision and defend its change of course uh, and to reply to its critics and to do that from a conservative point of view. It's not that we are aiming only for conservative readers. We want people who have open minds as well and who are open to persuasion. Um, and when I say conservative, I don't necessarily mean politically, though it happens we are. We're talking more about the law. 
and about jurisprudence, if you will. And from our angle, the most important development that happened last year and which is continuing this year is that the court is now trying to keep law disentangled from politics. And for any kind of return to constitutional standards, it's absolutely essential to keep law and politics apart. Yeah, I and could, so could not want agree to more. Inform the public about um, this very important development. So, um, give us uh, um, your background and uh, and your co-authors, so that we understand where you're coming from, um, if, if you would, real quickly. Sure. Um, I was until December 2020 a chaired professor of law at the University of St. Thomas in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, before that, I had worked in the Department of Justice for about 18 years. Uh, and before that, I had spent a short stint in private practice on Wall Street with a big firm there. I'm a graduate of Columbia University, of Oxford University, where I taught for several years, uh, and of Harvard Law School. Uh, and my co-author and good friend, also my former supervisor, is a very distinguished chaired professor of law at the University of California in Berkeley, widely published and an expert on constitutional law. Well, uh, well, fantastic. So um, w- one of the things that, that I'm interested in, of course, is the history of the founding of our country. And not a lot is um, talked about or I think understood about the beginning and kind of storied years of the Supreme Court. Uh, you go into that in the book, but if you could summarize some of those interesting things for us, that would be great. Well, the court got off, frankly, to a somewhat unsteady start. The first chief justice was John Jay, one of the leading figures in American politics of the period. Uh, And um, then it went, the chief justiceship went to someone named Oliver Ellsworth, again, a leading figure of the time. But it was only when Chief Justice John Marshall was appointed to the court by President John Adams that it sort of came into its own. And it claimed and upheld the power to of judicial review. And that's a critical development. The American system is almost unique. Certainly for many decades, it was pretty much unique in having courts that have the power under the law to strike down acts of Congress or acts of the states because they're not constitutional. That's a peculiar feature of the American system, and it's what gives the Supreme Court all the authority and all the power that it now has. Um, one of the concerns that that um, you know folks like I have, or people who would consider themselves um, conservatives or traditionalists, are really the um, the attacks against uh, our constitutional rights. And it seems like not a day goes by that some um, egregious overstep is happening within this current administration, and and even. Um, what we would consider the the uniparty or the establishment or the the deep state, uh, as we affectionately call it here on this show, um, it, it seems like yeah. every little bit is under attack. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the, the, I share your concern about the power uh, and the menace that's posed by the deep state. Um, I was shocked, like many others, like millions of people, to see the role of the FBI and the other intelligence agencies, the core of the deep state in trying to affect the outcome of presidential elections 
in 2016 and in the last election in 2020. The censorship that they either directly imposed or more often imposed through collaboration with social media, this is just not acceptable behavior in a democracy. Uh, and it needs to be thoroughly exposed and brought to light. I think the House Weaponization Committee under Jim Comer and um, Congressman Jordan is doing a wonderful job in bringing many of these disturbing trends to light. Yeah, I, I have real hope for what they're doing on that committee. Um, you know, my concern is some of this stuff might be too little too late because we've seen so much of their um, the deep state being, you know, embedded again with our our uh, tech um, companies and everything else in order to get the outcomes that uh, that they want. Um, you know, one of the big attacks, of course, um, every day is to the Second Amendment, which um, you know I think we're uh, we're fans of here on this show. Um, but it, but uh, they're having a, a real um, debate. At least, you know, they're trying to confuse us as to what that really means and and what our right to bear arms really is. Um, in your study of the Constitution and in writing this book, do you? Do you uh, hit that within the um, the book here? Oh, yes. There are, I think, three chapters of the book about the Second Amendment and about the Supreme Court's uh, major decisions concerning the Second Amendment. Um, look, for a long time, the Second Amendment was regarded as a kind of orphan, but it is there. It is in the Bill of Rights. And thanks largely to Justice Clarence Thomas, but also to other justices, it's no longer considered an orphan. It is emphatically on the same footing as freedom of speech or freedom of religion uh, or the right uh, not to incriminate yourself by compelled testimony. It is there. It is alive and well in the Constitution. And three support, three Supreme Court decisions over the years have vitalized it. And that's very important. It's not like abortion, which is not mentioned in the Constitution anywhere. You can stand the Constitution on its head and you will not find anything directly or indirectly referring to abortion, but the right to keep and bear arms is written into the text of the Constitution. It was an important amendment, and the Supreme Court is giving it real force. I should even mention, it's I think it's the only form of private property that is specifically mentioned and protected in the Constitution. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I didn't uh, think about that. Um, but what when you're seeing the attacks, you know, they're they're essentially trying to go back and um, imagine what our founding fathers were thinking, or at least telling us and telling people um, that they were thinking something different when they put the Second Amendment um, in our Constitution. What was um, you know, when you've studied this, you know, what do you believe the real intent was behind it? Was it just so that we could hunt or were there other purposes for having the Second Amendment included? That is a really great question. Um, for a long time, and certainly among the dissenters on the Supreme Court, there was a view that the Second Amendment was there only to enable the government to call to mobilize people to serve in the organized militia and to take their arms with them. The militia was the precursor of what we call the State National Guard. And so the idea was that um, the only reason we had the Second Amendment was to make it easier to bring the militia 
into force, to summon it into existence, and to have it with arms ready. Uh, and okay, there was some scholarship that supported that view, but the far better view, as the late Justice Scalia demonstrated um, 20 or 30 years ago, was that there was an individual right to bear arms for the for purposes of hunting, for recreational purposes, for purposes of serving in the militia, if called into it, and for purposes of self-defense. Uh, all of these purposes were contemplated at the time of the ratification of the Second Amendment, and there are reasons for keeping it alive and well even now. Um, you know, so uh, I, I, can I just add one more thing? Yes, please. This is please. something that's been overlooked in the debate. Um, the critics of the Supreme Court have been saying, no, 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 it really was never about self-defense. If it was all about self-defense or that was at the core of it, they would have said so. Well, first of all, things are important, even if they're not spelled out fully in the Constitution. And they don't that should not limit the rights we have. But apart from that, there's the Ninth Amendment, which, as I read it, protects the right of self-defense as well. So it's in the Constitution, one way or the other, the right to bear arms in self-defense. I think in the Second Amendment, but if you dispute that, read the Ninth Amendment. Okay, let's go into the Ninth Amendment then. Let, uh, give us a little education on, on that. Uh, that. That's fascinating. So when the Constitution was ratified, the people who drew it up, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, John Jay, on the whole thought, You've done our work. Um, this is as good a government as we can devise. And we've limited the powers of Congress. Article 1 of the Constitution, the very first article, sets out the limits of what the federal Congress can do. So they said, there's your Bill of Rights. You have the right to do anything that Congress cannot interfere with. And many of the opponents of the Constitution, the anti-federalists, thought, no, 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 that's not enough. We don't want just limits on federal power, we want affirmative guarantees of rights. One of the things the anti-federalists demanded with the support of many states was what has become the Second Amendment. They wanted a specific affirmation of the right to keep and bear arms. And they got that. And so you have these two real sources of the right to keep and bear arms in the Constitution. First, the limitations of powers on Congress and second, the Bill of Rights. I don't know that I've completely answered your question, but that's a start anyway. Our regulatory agencies think you are total rubes and idiots. So I have to tell you that Alliance and Trust family pays me to say this, but I did grow up with them, and they've handled my entire financial world for nearly 30 years. And as a testament to their talents, they've managed to keep me not just out of trouble, which in and of itself is remarkable, but they've helped me to build real wealth. They've assisted me through complex business transactions and family matters. Now even my daughters are working with Uncle Randy to put financial disciplines in place for their futures. Invest with people who share our values and will help you to be a good steward with what God has given you. Let Alliance and Trust help you to plan for what's next. To learn more and get your free copy of Alliance and Trust's book on financial stewardship, Wisdom Before Wealth, visit friendofbrice.com or call 805-371-8020. 
Yeah, well, uh, I'd have to take one of your classes to completely answer it. Um, <laughs> no, I, uh, um, one of the one of the things that I uh, have talked about or remarked, and I and I want to say that this is true, and you can tell me about um, the the Constitution. But as our founding fathers were debating some of these principles, you know, they were uh, they were debating a lot of this in writing or in, or on the record as to what their thoughts were. Um, with respect to you know why we have these certain things enshrined in our constitution and in these these amendments, um, were is there um, uh, evidence of their thought process uh, either on record or or in writing with respect to the idea that hey we we um, have the Second Amendment also to defend us against a tyrannical government or the overstep yes. of authority. We, we do. Let me just loop back to your previous question, because I now remember what I had left out. You asked me about the Ninth Amendment. Yes. Okay, so we have the first eight amendments, the Bill of Rights, basically. Then people said, but look, if we don't mention a right, does that mean that the people don't have it? Because how are we going to spell out all the rights we have? I mean, one question that was really asked at the time was, do I have the right to sleep on my right side as opposed to my left side in bed? It's not mentioned in the Bill of Rights. Okay. So the Ninth Amendment was added for the purpose of sort of cleaning everything up by saying, in addition to the first eight amendments, in addition to freedom of speech, freedom of religion, the right to a jury, and so on, in addition to all of that, you have a whole panoply of rights that we're not enumerating specifically here. And that included the right of personal self-defense against threats to your life, your property. Now, okay, I follow do we you. have do we have uh, evidence of what they're thinking? Is it's amazing how abundant the evidence is? Yes, both from the people who propounded the Constitution, who defended it in meetings of state conventions to ratify it, in the newspapers of the period, we can glean a great deal about what they meant to do. Yes. Yeah, and I'm glad you say that. Um, and and again, if you've got some specific examples in regards to the Second Amendment and, well, and my question regarding that, that was all, yeah, that'd be great. It was referred to as the Palladium of Liberty. It was the core of um, the defense of of all other rights from a, a government that could conceivably become tyrannical or oppressive. The Palladium of Liberty is how early. Writers refer to it. You cannot yeah. have a free country and respect for rights unless the people can back up their claims with weaponry. Um, yeah, no, thank you for for pointing that out. Um, the challenge uh, seems to be that um, the the side that doesn't like certain amendments or the way they get applied. Um, wants to pretend as if it was a great mystery and the Constitution is the only document that we can uh, go off of in understanding what the intentions were. And and again, that's not true because these things were debated on record and many of these um, ideas within our government have incredible um, longevity and incredible depth to them where we can see what these folks were thinking um, uh, again, because they openly debated it, they debated it in writing, and it's on the record, and it's not a mystery as to what they were thinking at the time when they proposed these 
um, rights. Not at all. And the three Supreme Court cases that we go into in the book in, in considerable detail, they all refer to these original writings. There's a vigorous debate on the court between two schools of thought and the justices, and the original intentions are made very clear in the debates that are cited and discussed in depth in those three Supreme Court opinions. They're yeah. all there if anybody wants to read them. I, I love it. Um, so uh, we're coming, uh, we're, we're at really the um, anniversary of the Dobbs decision. And uh, um, as we have these uh, decisions come down from the court, uh, which is now uh, more conservative and more of a textual court than we've had in a long time, uh, the opposition to this court uh, comes up with the idea and continues to bandy about court packing. Can you talk a little bit about the history of that idea and, um, and, and why it would be a terrible idea if you believe so? Of course, I do believe it would be a very, very bad idea. Uh, Congress does have the power to decide the size of the Supreme Court. It's been nine justices for a very, very long time. I think since the 1860s or 1870s. But it's dropped below nine, uh, and there have been proposals from time to time to raise the number um, to 10, 15, or maybe to compel justices to retire when they reach, let's say, the age of 70. But nine has been the standard. It's a good number. Uh, I don't think you will find any Supreme Court justice, either now or in the past, who has proposed changing the number from Nine. It's uh, it's a historical. Um, it, it works. It's a very pragmatic decision. It's just about right. They can handle a business they need to, but it's not too small and not too big. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, when the Supreme Court at the start of the New Deal began striking down social welfare legislation that he was proposing and that Congress was passing, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, after the 1936 election. He had not campaigned on this, but he won a big landslide in 1936. Huge blowout landslide. Um, and after winning, he proposed to increase the size of the court, to pack the court, so that he could get results that were more favorable to his legislative program. Now, what happened surprised him. Um, and it was one of the rare cases in which Franklin Roosevelt, who was a master politician, got the public mood wrong. Um, there was enormous pushback, partly from within his own party, which controlled Congress, um, and partly from the Republican Party, uh, but also from uh, the American bar, uh, uh, the, the media, and ordinary people. And his court packing plan was defeated. It was the biggest um, defeat outside the Supreme Court that Roosevelt had suffered. And since that time, since about 1936 or 37, the idea has rightly been in the garbage pail. It's just it's a political move designed to encroach on the independence of the Supreme Court. I saw a poll the other day, the Mason-Dixon poll, that showed that 70% of the American people believe firmly in judicial independence and want Congress to leave the Supreme Court alone, not compromise or undermine its independence. That's what court packing does. It strikes at the court's independence. And we need 
in a country like ours. Judges who are fearless, who will take on public opinion if need be, and who will read the law as they see it, regardless of what Congress says, regardless of what the politicians say. We need that to be a free country. We do not want, we don't have legislative rule. We have a mixed system in which independent judges can strike down acts of Congress that they consider incompatible with the Constitution. That's worked very well since 1787, and I say, leave it alone. Well, from your lips to God's ears, because I do not think our current administrative state believes the same way you and I do. Right. That's right. Um, So there were some uh, pretty bad decisions that the Supreme Court uh, made over the years. Of course, Roe v. Wade uh, tops uh, that list, along with the uh, Dred Scott decision. Are there any others that we don't think about that that they struck down or even still exist today that, in your opinion, are, are, you know, bad rulings? Well, there were two other than the two you mentioned, which I would put on any list of the 10 worst decisions. There are two others that should be mentioned. Uh, One is Plessy versus Ferguson, which was a decision from the 1890s, uh, which said that uh, racial segregation by law, as it existed in the Deep South and elsewhere, was consistent with the Constitution. And that decision, Plessy versus Ferguson, was overruled much later, sadly, in Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, which held that the public schools could not be segregated by law, but had to be open to children of all races. And the other, I think, um, disgraceful opinion was a wartime opinion from the Second World War, about 1943 or so, 44, called Korematsu, which upheld uh, President Franklin Roosevelt's decision to intern Japanese Americans, uh, even though there was no real evidence at all of their disloyalty to the United States or loyalty to the Empire of Japan. And in fact, many Japanese-American soldiers served with great distinction and honor in the war in the Pacific, including the senator from Hawaii some time ago, Senator Inouye, who lost an arm. You may remember him. Um, And that decision actually formally stayed on the books until the Roberts Court, until pretty recently. Yeah, that was a shameful time in our history, for sure. And um, yeah, I'm glad to see some of these things uh, being, uh, some of these wrongs being righted uh, by the Supreme Court. Um, one of the major concerns I have is we are returning to some discriminatory practices here in the U.S. that are against, like, uh, for instance, the um, admissions issues with regards to Asians. Um, who are penalized um, under scoring systems um, by Harvard and others, which is just really an egregious issue. Um, Are they going to be uh, ruling on stuff like that anytime soon? What what, uh, things are... Yeah, really? Wow. Yes. All right, well, let's talk about Um, that. So this 4th of July, as you're sitting on your Swedish chair that you assembled yourself, feet propped up over your Persian rug, watching your Japanese TV and drinking your German beer, because, you know, you can't drink Bud Light, you might ask yourself, do I have anything made in America anymore? 
And the answer, if you go to GoodRanchers.com and use my promo code Bryce, will be yes. Because you'll strictly be eating American-raised meats. And during their 4th of July sale, starting today, Good Ranchers is doing Independence Daily Deals. That means on top of the $30 you'll get off if you use my code Bryce, you're going to also have amazing deals available for the next 16 days. When you go to GoodRanchers.com today, you're going to get an awesome deal on the best quality beef, chicken, and pork, and all of it's raised in America. Celebrate your freedom as we get closer and closer to July 4th with amazing new deals every day from Good Ranchers. So go to GoodRanchers.com today and take advantage of these amazing deals. Use my code BRYCE and get an additional $30 off your order. That's GoodRanchers.com, code Bryce for these amazing Independence Daily Deals. GoodRanchers.com, American Meat Delivered. Yes, um, there's the Harvard case, and it's joined together with a case from North Carolina. Um, these are cases involving racial preferences um, in admission to higher education, to colleges. Um, and that has been the practice in higher education for a very long time now, since about 1979. And Harvard, uh, I am very sorry to say, has kind of pioneered this form of racial discrimination. Um I mentioned a minute ago the Plessy versus Ferguson case, mm-hmm. and that was a case that upheld racial segregation in uh, railways and um, places of public accommodation. There was a dissent, one one dissenter in that case. He actually was a former slave owner, uh, Justice John Harlan. He's called the first Harlan because his son, under Eisenhower, was later appointed to the Supreme Court, John Harlan II. And John Harlan I wrote a passionate and powerful dissent against segregation in Plessy versus Ferguson. And he basically said, uh, in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of the law, the eyes of the Constitution, there is no race. You're American. You're not black or yellow or red or brown or white. You're American in the eyes of the law. That's your race. Okay? Amen. And that was this great opinion goes back to the 1890s, and we have been struggling since then to get back to it. If uh, things turn out well tomorrow, we may have that principle reaffirmed. Well, um, again, from your lips to uh, God's ears, (laughs) I hope that's that's the case. Um, What other controversial decisions or major things are on the court's docket uh, uh, that you see in the future? So we are still waiting for at least three other decisions um, besides the Harvard, North Carolina case. Uh, Two of them concern freedom of religion. And one, of course, concerns uh, the Biden student debt forgiveness program. Uh, And we should have the court's views about that in a day or so, certainly by the end of the month, but I think maybe tomorrow. Um, The religion cases are interesting. One is a kind of replay of a case that has been um, before the Supreme Court earlier about the baker um, who uh, refused on grounds of conscience uh, to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex couple intending to get married. Um, The new case is very similar, except it's not a baker. uh, It's a website designer. Uh, and what uh, there's been a lot of misleading information in the media about the case. I read a headline the other day that said this is a case about someone who refuses 
to serve um, gay or lesbian customers. That is not true. Um, if you want, if you are a gay or lesbian customer and you want a web design for your new uh, widget company, that's fine. And um, this uh, this website designer will do that for you. But on grounds of religion, um, the designer won't do the same uh, if it's to mark or celebrate a same-sex marriage. So this poses a tension between anti-discrimination laws, which of course have important purposes and which ensure that gays and lesbians uh, uh, have access to products and services generally available in the market and the rights of conscience. Uh, and the court has struggled with this issue. Um, it's kind of punted the last round or two on it, but I think we will have important clarification maybe this week about how yeah, the balance tilts. Yeah, that'll be an interesting one to follow. Um, from my personal view, um, if you want real liberty in a society, then there's going to be some things that you don't get. And if that web designer decided to dis discriminate and it wasn't on the basis of, uh, you know, religious underpinning, um, you know, they might just be a hateful person and discriminate. And I think that we need to err on the side of allowing even bad things to happen to a certain extent in our society for the purposes of l true liberty. Uh, because that's, again, the only way to have true liberty is you're going to get some things that you personally might not like. And um, and I think we, we need to leave a lot of that stuff up to the free market. And um, I, I'm, I'm glad that the uh, the court's weighing in on it because there is a concerted effort by certain communities to go after people who have um, objections based on religious basis. Um, and, and we've got to we've got to stop that. And so um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that decision. It will be. And there again, I will point out the right to the free exercise of religion is actually written into the Constitution. It is a bedrock right. Uh, it doesn't mean you can do whatever you please in the name of God, but it certainly means, it seems to me, that you should be able to make your own choice about uh, the purposes for which your services will be used. It is your skill, your art, your talent. After all, that is at issue. And generally speaking, we should, I completely agree with you, allow people to exercise their skills and their bodies as they see fit when it comes to serving customers. You know, one of the big themes I, I know um, that you've uh, included in your book is, is about the administrative state, which we talked about earlier, that really is um, running things. Um, it, you know, we, and we saw that even while we have uh, presidents in office like Donald Trump or others, um, when you have this large of an enterprise and this massive a bureaucracy, um, you know, there's a whole lot of things that aren't getting done or a whole lot of things that, uh, that you know, should be happening that aren't based on the administrative state and the fact that they really do control so much of what our government does. Um, you know, is there a way to uh, ever correct that? Well, that is a wonderful question, and I can say I hope so. Um, clearly, I mean, the administrative state... Uh, we've always had to have bureaucrats, right? Even sure. from the beginning. You can't just uh, charge the president 
with responsibility for everything. The president is going to need assistance. So there's always been a kind of small scale um, administrative state that's necessary. Even the cabinet, you could say, is a is a form of the administrative state. But it's grown, it's swollen, um, largely because of the progressive movement uh, under Woodrow Wilson and then later Franklin Roosevelt. And it is largely out of control now. Um, the Supreme Court has made has taken some important steps to enable the president to reassert control over the federal bureaucracy. That's hard enough. But last term, it began to take further steps uh, to bring, to enable, to encourage, to force Congress to step up to the plate and assume more control over the administrative state. And it said, in effect, both to Congress and to administrators, if we are talking about big ticket items where the federal bureaucracy is maybe going to change the entire power grid system of the United States at a cost of billions. If we're talking about items like that, we want a clear sign off from Congress that that is what they want. These decisions are way too big and way too important to be left to unelected federal bureaucrats who have an interest in aggrandizing their own power. If we're going to do, if we're going to change the power grid, okay, let's just say that. We're going to do that. Then we want a debate in Congress. We want different points of view to be heard. We want a lot of deliberation. We want a lot of input from the public, from affected industries, from everybody. And when Congress speaks clearly to the issue, we respect that. Uh, absolutely. But if it tries to pass the buck and say, here, Environmental Agency, Protection Agency, you decide, no, we're not going to let that happen. So last question here, which uh, which I think is a, a big one. So the administrative state is is a massive danger to us. And of course, uh, big tech, which you mentioned in the book, it's been censoring uh, a lot of our free speech. But now we have a whole nother threat that many of us were unaware of until quite recently. And that's companies like BlackRock or Vanguard or State Street that is actually manipulating the outcome of everything in our culture, or at least attempting to, and they're doing it with our retirement funds. Is there, uh, is there going to be some kind of challenge coming on that? And do you see anything in the, in the tea leaves there? Well, I really hope so. Um, it's interesting you mentioned BlackRock. Just before this program, I read uh, a piece that came out today in the Gateway Pundit, about BlackRock and James O'Keefe, who does a great yes. job of uh, uh, journalism, exposing uh, uh, from inside what is going on, let's say, in abortion clinics. He interviewed uh, uh, an executive, or maybe it was a lobbyist, I forget, in BlackRock. And BlackRock, uh, the BlackRock agent said, you know, we hate publicity. We want to work in the dark. We don't want people to know about this. So I hope your listeners... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Read up as much as they can on BlackRock. And he said, let me tell you, the, the, the agent said to O'Keefe, let me tell you how much it costs to buy a U.S. senator. They're cheap. They're $10,000 a piece. That's okay? right. This is not acceptable in a free country where a United States senator can be bought by a corporate behemoth for $10,000. They are, by the way, at least I don't know about the company, but the CEO, Larry Fink, is a major 
Biden donor. Oh, yeah. Okay. Not, not, not surprising very, at I have, all. I have written in the past in The Federalist about BlackRock. Uh, it does use its tremendous power. It doesn't own any shares. It casts votes for the owners, which can often be big pension funds. So they yeah. are shielded from any kind of political accountability. No, it's 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 wild, and uh, and yeah, I wanted you to end on that because I think it's massively important. Well, the book is again the politically incorrect guide to the Supreme Court by Don't your mind, I'll uh, just hold it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, excellent by John Yu and Robert uh, Delahunty, and uh, we appreciate you coming on the show, and we will make sure appreciate that we uh, we buy this and uh, and spread the word around. So, thank you, sir, for joining us. Thank you very much. All right, and we are out. Hey, thank you for watching or listening to this show. If you are someone who listens to us on the podcast apps, please go to our Rumble channel. Even if you're not going to watch us there, we'd appreciate you hitting subscribe. We want to boost those numbers up and make sure that that channel continues to grow. But again, thank you so much for listening to us.